You're listening to Popcorn Ronin with Roger and Vince. Every two weeks, they give their thoughts on movies, TV, and anime. which has rarely, if ever, been portrayed in Star Trek movies and films, is boredom. Boredom with the ins and outs of traversing the galaxy of blank space, of the banality of diplomacy required when dealing with new species. As Kirk says in the first few minutes of Star Trek Beyond, three years into their five-year mission, it's become episodic. Now, this, of course, is a tongue-in-cheek reference to the TV series which have appeared over the years. However, It also paints a picture of a captain who's gone from incredibly energetic and driven to someone who is considering a position on a way station to get off of the Enterprise. You see it in his dealings with a new race upon his return to his ship, his clothes in tatters, barely able to bring himself to care. It's as if most first contacts have ended in similar results. And if Voyager has taught us anything other than that most aliens look identical to humans but for a small nose or forehead appendage, it's that aliens are nearly always jerks, regardless of which quadrant of space they occupy. And as it turns out, so are humans, especially if they've crash-landed on a strange planet and feel the Federation has abandoned them. Star Trek Beyond is Justin Lin's special blend of Tokyo Drift in Space And if audiences are to be believed, that's a highly desirable combination. I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this. And that says a lot when you consider our prior episodes on Star Trek and my love for the franchise and how much I liked even the last one, Into Darkness, which a lot of other people, including yourself, have slammed. And even I will still defend that movie. And yet this... Even though I'm also a fan of the Fast and Furious franchise, had a hard time imagining what would come of this combination of director and IP. Especially when you see the motorcycle sequences <laughs> before seeing the movie and see how it fits in context. And it still doesn't fit in context, but it's fun to watch. But I don't know if you went into it with the same kind of trepidation or if you were just in for a fast and furious ride that just takes place in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. More surprisingly to our listeners, I loved the movie yeah. because I've made no uh, attempts to hide my distaste for into darkness and the initial marketing for this movie really didn't work for me. Like I mean, the first trailer being set to sabotage, like, I understand, like, at the time, it was a throwback to the original film, which in the context of that film, it worked. And then in the context of how it was used in this film, it worked. But as part of the marketing, it it just felt really weird and very non-Star Trek. And I understand to a point, you know, your trailers have to grab an audience. So that's where a lot of the action set pieces are going to be. But a lot of the marketing up until, like, the very end was just like, I don't know what the hell they're doing with this movie. This just doesn't seem right and then I started reading some of the advanced reviews, and I was like, oh, okay. I I was actually excited by the time I got into the theater after reading some of the advanced reviews. And like, yeah, the marketing is it's typical movie marketing. They're not marketing the right film. <laughs> and I, and so we think about, you know, why Justin Lin was such a great fit for this, because, you know, he's the director that made the Fast and the Furious movies good by having that blend of action, but all those character moments that really make those movies as special as they are and you had that same blend here in Star Trek of enough action for a summer blockbuster, but enough character development to really make you give a crap about it. Well, that's the thing, too. And this is something that I'd read beforehand, how um, like the 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 actor who played uh, McCoy Bones was actually not going to come back for mm-hmm. this one here because they were only obligated contractually to do two and so he had another film that he was thinking that he was, I think he was even offered it. And so he was not going to do this based on 
how little presence he had in the second one, which is true. And it was after meeting Lynn that Lynn was saying, like, no, 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 here's what we have planned. And then when you see the film and see how important Bones' character is throughout the film, that was nice because he is a great actor. He plays that role so beautifully. And so the dynamics between not just him and Kirk, which is to be expected, but much more him and Spock throughout the entirety of the show was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And I would say on par with the stuff with um, Scotty and Jayla, that they were just, it was a combination that was so much fun to watch. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he did come back. And even to tie it back in with the the Fast and the Furious references, like at the beginning of the franchise, it was very much you know a two person franchise. You know, the first movie you had Dom and what the heck was uh, the other guy's name? You can just say Paul Walker. Walker. Paul Walker. Yeah, I forget his name. And then the second movie, it was him and uh, Roman. And you had a great cast, but they were largely background dressing. It wasn't until like again Justin Lin came in and they kind of figured out the formula that it became an ensemble. Yes, you had lead characters, but everybody was important. And then especially as we saw as the movies go on, the different pairings of characters, you know, switching up, you know, who's working together really worked to add life and depth to it. And we get that here of, you know, Spock and McCoy and uh, Chekhov and Kirk. Like it, the different pairings, because I was not interested in a third Kirk Spockathon. Yeah. Like, yes, of course, they need to be the focal central characters of the narrative especially early on in the franchise but the entire cast has so much more to offer and they absolutely delivered on that here i think that he understood that it's the third in the reboot it does not have to be just kirk and spock Mm -hmm. Um, and I, i will go so far as to say they could have even trimmed that back a little bit more because of what you're saying with so many of the other pairings being so much more impactful and we're at a point that we don't need that bromance all all the time in every single movie and i i felt that even at that he pushed it too hard with both of them having thought of leaving enterprise that i thought that it was even that was done too much so i think that for the next one i'm hoping that there is even less it's going to be mm-hmm. – I'm curious how the next script is going to work simply because of who's going to be filling the roles. Because both for um, Kirk and Spock, they signed off for a another episode – or sorry, another another film. But I haven't heard of the rest of them actually signing on for the next one yet. I actually have my reservations about the next one because from what we've learned, they're actually doing some sort of weird time travel thing because they announced Chris Hemsworth is coming back. Oh, yes, yes. Kirk's father. Yeah. And like, I don't want another Daddy Issues movie. Like, we've done that. But well, it depends I'm on what they to, do I'm going with to reserve it. judgment, of course. Yeah, yeah, because it depends on what they do with it. I mean, there, there certainly are a lot of stories that they can do with time travel that that could be fun that fit into the canon of mm-hmm. of Star Trek. So it doesn't have to necessarily be daddy issues so much as hey, I'm freaking flying around with a dad or something like that. It doesn't have to be me. Give me the Cyclops uh, Corsair story and I'm I'm down with that. Yeah. So this film had a lot of different things happening and and this is something we're in when you put an action director in the role of it's not always going to make sense. (laughs) And this was one of those where I found that, yeah, there's fantastic character moments. There's fantastic action sequences. There's a lot of good stuff, but there's some stuff also that's just like, how the hell does that make sense? And part of it could be, again, putting an action director in charge. And some of it may also be Lynn's, uh, and not just Lynn, but also Simon Pegg, who was mm-hmm. one of the main writers for this. He wrote with uh, Don Young. But their lack of familiarity with a lot of, of Star Trek. Like, when you see them arrive at Yorktown for the first time, that was one of those things where I'm like, was that really needed just for a special effects? It, it looks great, reminiscent of other films we've seen, but... Okay, whatever. 
and you get the 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 fun scenes that are there with um, Sulu, which we'll get into in a moment, and, and different other things. But you also go have him talking to someone about a position that he applied for to be the vice admiral, which would make him <laughs> make him jump from captain in three years to vice admiral, the commanding officer of Yorktown. And I don't know if when you were listening to that, if you're going, cause I, it's not like I know all the ranks by heart in, in terms of the star Wars or star Trek, I should say continuity, but I knew that I was going like, how does that make sense? That's, that would make him her boss that he's talking to. <laughs> uh, and there was a bunch of little things like that throughout that even if you're not a diehard Star, Star Trek, a Trekkie kind of thing that you know all the facts, there's a bunch of things where you're kind of scratching your head and going, uh, okay, it's a, you know, action, more action than anything else. Just let it go and move on with the story. Well, for that specific plot point, it actually made a lot of sense to me because... I, again, I'm not super on board with all the particular canon of it, and it doesn't really matter because this is a different universe anyway. <laughs> but I would see like a high-ranking position on a space station being less important because you're not captaining a ship. You're not – at least, you know, yes, the, the name of the rank may be higher, but as far as in like the, the social hierarchy of the, uh, the Federation, I would think a vice admiral on a space station – would have less authority than the captain of a starship. Like the captain, that makes if, no if, sense if, to me. If the starship is docked at the station, yes, the station commander has control. But again, it's it just if you look at it, in terms of the responsibility, the scope of responsibility. Yes, yes. I, it's I'm not arguing far that far greater for the. the but space it's essentially station. somebody giving up command of a vessel for essentially a desk job. So, yes, the rank itself may be higher, but there's a lot more playing into it other than that. Okay. Well. Uh, again, it was just one of those things, and there were a few of those throughout that I was a little. I, a lot of it eh. comes into my love of Deep Space Nine, where as awesome as Cisco was, like you know, he was just the guy on the station, so he didn't really carry a lot of respect with you know various captains and whatnot that came through. So I can see that same sort of uh, power uh, differential playing in here. You like Cisco? Deep Space Nine is my favorite series. Really? I I was just talking with someone about that on Twitter like a couple of weeks ago and they were saying as well that her, her favorite was, was deep space nine. I'm going, Oh my God, I hated Cisco. I could deal with everybody else, but Cisco, the, the guy, the actor was such a bad actor, like such. a bad he, he really grew into that role. Some, some of the later episodes, he is absolutely phenomenal. Well, that's the thing too. I was like, saying with like, the episode, uh, I think it's called in the pale moonlight where he's basically giving his captain's log of assassinating Cardassian ambassadors, or not Cardassian, I think it was Romulan ambassadors, in order to get them to join uh, the Federation in the war against the Dominion. That is such a powerful episode of him as an actor. Like, watch that episode, and it'll well, change your mind. Yeah, because we never made it, I don't think we made it to the third season ever. And I've tried well, the third a couple of times. Third season is when the show gets good. Uh, yeah, and see, that's the thing. You shouldn't have to suffer through two yeah, seasons of crap the, to get to good. It's the supernatural conundrum of, yeah, it starts off pretty bad, but same <laughs> or like Arrow, where like just get through the first season and it gets better. Yeah, because, yeah, we never bothered. Anyways, going back to this now. Um, going back to the, the Sula gay family scene. Mm -hmm. This was interesting because they made a big deal out of it beforehand. And Simon Pegg was actually respectfully <laughs> disagreeing with, uh, oh, damn it. Original Sulu. Um, George Takei. Yeah, Takei. Um, because Takei was saying he didn't like that Ooh. ideal at all. As an aside, did a voice in Kubo that I saw yesterday. Oh, yeah? And I instantly went, that's George Takei. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, that's another one that we we're going to have to do on this show, too. Um, but anyways, uh, Takei really didn't like this idea because he thought it changed the character that Roddenberry had not intended to be gay. And Peg was kind of saying politely because <laughs> it's, it, you know, you're, you're trying to tell someone who's gay how they should feel about gay characters. It's yeah. a very, very delicate conversation to have. But he was respectfully disagreeing. In, and I agree with him because he was saying the same things that we have said, not just for film, but especially for comic books, where 
a lot of these characters were created at a time where it was all white, older men. And so you didn't have a lot of uh, diversity in the characters. So you do sometimes have to retcon those characters and rewrite them so that it it makes more sense in terms of the diversity that we see nowadays. And I thought it was handled beautifully. I thought mm-hmm. it was handled in a way where, and this is something that, um, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, John Cho talked about as well, because he said that in an interview he talked with Justin Lin to really push to have his partner be also Asian because mm-hmm. of the massive stereotypes that still exist now for gay Asian men. And so here he wanted it to be something that wasn't extraordinary and weird with a different alien or whatever to make, not make light of it, but to negate some of the effects, but just make it seem like that's just normal. And when uh, Kirk comes out and sees them, I was waiting for an eyebrow to go up or something. And I was so happy that it, there was none. Mm-hmm. He just watched him, watched him hug his partner, and then proceeded on with his own stuff. And, and it was gave like, a little smile, like seeing perfect. his crew being happy. That's yeah, it. it was. I thought it was handled amazingly well. And, and I, to an extent, I can also understand Takei's point of view as being, you know, of course, a personal friend of Gene Roddenberry, and like wanting at least the, the initial vision of the character to remain true. So like, well, I don't agree per se, I, I can at least see what he's going for, but uh, you look at what Star Trek did back in the sixties, as far as how it handled racial and gender politics, yeah. Yeah. which were the hot button issues of the time. It was incredibly progressive, not to say that gay rights weren't also a thing in the sixties, but it wasn't, it wasn't as talked about. Uh, Star Trek had to pick its fights. I'm sure if it had been more of a topical issue at the time, I guarantee Eugene Roddenberry would have written something about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially when you see that, like the the first interracial kiss mm-hmm. on TV was with them, with uh, with her and, and and Kirk. So I can see them doing something in that time, and I and I can respect that. But it doesn't change the fact that that this does nothing to change the character of Sulu. No, nothing whatsoever. Nothing, because it's just a facet of his life. It doesn't define him. And again, I thought it was really well handled. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, this was the final episode with a uh, movie with <sighs> Yelchin. And he was so good in this, too. He, I, I wondered how much of a role he would have in this, mm-hmm. going yet again back to Into Darkness where it was very much everybody else was secondary to Was he even in Into Darkness? <laughs> yeah, just not very much. Though, so with this, I was wondering, knowing ahead of time, of course, because he passed, was like, this is going to be the last time we see him in this role. And he plays the role so good. And I was thrilled with how much he was in there. I think they could have used him even more, of course, but it was nice to see him in as much as they, they did use him. Yeah, he he was important to the plot. He played pivotal roles in a number of scenes. He got to bounce off and have interactions with a number of characters. He was treated very well in this film. Yeah. What did you think of that idea of, because it it, it lasts for quite a while, this idea, this moping around kind of thing of the, the tedium of what the three years have become and looking forward to yet another two years to go for, for this mission alone. Did you buy into it right from the get-go simply because we left off at a point where they were still incredibly excited? And yes, it is three years later, but for us, it's still just a blink of an eye. So I know that personally, I kind of had a hard time buying into that boredom, which which lasts for a while because it's not just boredom, but you have this conundrum going on with Kirk where like when he's having the discussion with McCoy, the, when they're having the, the drinks there and he's saying how, you know, it's, he, he joined on a dare because it's, it's not the same as how his father joined and his father needing, needing the Federation so much and being, that being a part of him and Kirk just needing something, not necessarily the Federation, and having that crisis of conscience to try to figure out who he is as a man. 
I, I liked that aspect a little bit more than the boredom, but the two of them blended together, just wound up with a very, very mopey Kirk for quite a while, actually. And it, not to say that it got on my nerves, but it was like, I, it, it was harder to swallow. I, I, I can buy it to a degree of, yes, you get to do interesting stuff while you're out there, but the the sheer monotony of like a five-year voyage, like, I, I know people who served in the U.S. Navy, and yeah, you get to do some really cool stuff, but 90% of the time, it's, you know, the same stuff over and over again with literally nothing to do. So I can understand, to an extent, just being being kind of tired that you're not making the difference that you thought you could make. I, I It never quite struck me at least by the end, like I realized it wasn't necessarily action that Kirk was interested in. Of course, that's an aspect, but it being able to make a difference and actually like realizing that it's not, it's not about like, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. It's, it's not about necessarily the excitement of the job, but the fulfillment of the job is what he realized by the end. I think as an overall story arc, it worked out, but I, I can agree at the beginning, it got a little, like it, it definitely dragged. Yeah. 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 And then you had a couple of little story arcs that were thrown in. The obvious nod to Spock having passed, which... Yo, when he pulled out that picture of the original crew, I choked up a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. So that is the driving force then for um, Zachary's Spock as well to come to terms with his place in the universe as well, be it within the Federation or to continue Ambassador Spock's mm-hmm. plans and whatnot. So that that I thought that was I thought that was a much more believable story arc than Kirk's. And yeah. and something that is much more impactful. One is moping because he's bored. The other one has this crisis of conscience because of who he was in another lifetime kind of thing and knowing that he's died. So I thought that was supremely impactful. And then when you toss in the stuff between him and Uhura, not just the breakup, but then the hysterical bits with the necklace. Oh my God. With him and Chekhov, you have this fantastic blend of impactful and devastating and yet incredibly funny as well. And then toss in the amazing adventure stuff with him as well and having the freaking piece of the ship lodged in him and everything else. <laughs> so like Spock is the one in here that, that was shining throughout the entirety of the episode, the, the movie I felt. You actually touched on something I, that I did want to mention earlier that it slipped my mind when we got onto another topic and that, you know, with the, with the necklace specifically, but as well as a lot of other plot elements in this movie, like narratively, I feel this movie was written incredibly well. Like every important plot point that came up in the second half of the movie was established early on. Like there was no you know, J.J. Abrams surprise twist. There was no magic blood. Like they earned every payoff in the plot as the movie went along with the necklace with uh mccoy being able to pilot the whatever the hell it was um the music like and there there was so much well established narratively in this movie like that as i'm sitting there watching it and something comes up i was like oh yeah they they talked even something as silly as acidic snot like it it wasn't just something they pulled out. Like they, there was a, you know, what we thought originally was a throwaway line, but it was to establish that as part of the narrative. And I really, really appreciate the job the screenwriters did on that front. The only thing that I would challenge on that is crawl because I did not find, and that's the big bad villain. I did not find that it was well enough established right from the get go. And yes, I understand that part of it is they wanted certain reveals. Well, yeah, and you, surprises, you have to have reveals at some point. But I didn't, and, and it's entirely because of the shape shifting aspect of it mm-hmm. being so foreign, not foreign for another species, but foreign as it would pertain to a human. That it was like, how does this make sense? What the hell's going on here? And so that aspect I wasn't crazy about. I will say. 
that that's one of those things where I, I can understand in the moment, you know, having to keep a couple cards up your sleeve. But at, when you're looking at the full picture at the end, like there was breadcrumbs, like obviously you're not yeah, going to yeah, be yeah. able to figure it out as a viewer, but it, I still feel that everything was established well enough that it made sense. So the Enterprise then is dispatched to go to rescue a ship that's gone down in an uncharted nebula, and the Enterprise being the best one to do that, of course, Kirk gathers up the troops and they head out to help this captain of the ship, Calera, and she's the only one that's made it through. I That's actually one of the ones where it was like, okay, I didn't see that bait-and-switch come. I fully expected that this was... On the level, and then oh no, I immediately really see. <laughs> yeah. I actually stopped watching trailers for this early enough on. I saw a couple and went, I'm well, in. This wasn't got- based off trailers, this was just me going, Oh, yeah, she's gonna betray them. Yeah, see, I'm I, I don't what I'm saying is, I don't know if it was in a trailer or whatever. And I actually, I actually was on board with her and thought, Okay, this is gonna be interesting. And the, the actress for that did such a good job. Uh, oh, it was very well done. Just me, like yeah. sitting there, like trying to pick apart the plot as I'm watching it. I went, "Oh yeah, this yeah. is going to happen." <laughs> the um, the only thing, the only other thing too that I thought, again, there's there's elements of it, and I've seen it now a couple of times. I need to see it more. <laughs> <laughs> there's elements where you're like, "Okay, hold on, how the hell does that make sense?" Is the Abernath? Now, of course, mm-hmm. it's the magical MacGuffin. That is all that the villain is waiting for to be able to unleash mayhem and, and havoc upon his enemies who happen to be the, the Federation. How did it wind up in Kirk's hands? Coincidence? How, how, that bullshit. <laughs> That's what I call I bullshit. Mean, they, 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 it was the artifact he was given to take to that weird tiny alien race at the beginning. Which were awesome. Let's just... Yeah, we saw, you know, when they checked it into the inventory, something was scanning the ship. And as we come to find out later that Crawl had the ability to intercept Starfleet transmissions. So, yes, it was coincidence that it was in Kirk's hands and on the Enterprise. But it wasn't coincidence that the Enterprise was the one that went into that nebula. Yeah, it was. okay. yes, that is true. But again, that it's far too much of a coincidence that a tiny object in the span of that galaxy has wound up in Kirk's hands to give to another species. Well, he, here's the thing. I'm sure this has happened millions of times in the Star Trek universe, just there were no cameras on those ships. <laughs> this is the story we happen to see. It's not the only story that's happened. All right, fine. <laughs> I don't buy it. But at at right. some point, you have to just go along. Which is what I said earlier. It's just it's there's a couple of things that even upon repeated viewings, I'm like, hold on a second. <laughs> Come on. Had they just written it better? But you even, can put up I'll, with I'll, so I'll even more. give it to their credit, though. It's not like he broke into the ship and suddenly stole something we'd never seen before. OK, yeah, there is that. But again, it was shoehorned in is what I'm saying. I'm, like, I'm not going to argue with really that, but I can also sure. see the J.J. Abrams version of this movie. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> and so, of course, the Enterprise is destroyed. Again, <laughs> listen, it made it two whole movies. That's for for, for a cinematic enterprise. That's a long lifespan. <laughs> what is it about directors feeling the need to destroy this ship? Because it happens far too often. I, I just I don't get it. I think it's that, like the Statue of Liberty in a movie. Yeah, really. If the Statue of Liberty is in a movie. It's going to get fucked up or the Eiffel Tower or anything like that. It's just the enterprise itself is so iconic eventually something's got to happen to it. Hey, yeah, I... It, the problem is, is that that impact is lost now. Yes. The first time we've, we saw the Enterprise get blown up or destroyed, you're like, holy shit. Now it's like, oh, come on. Do you know how long it's going to take to repair that? Come on, guys. Well, this, this is where I'll play devil's advocate and go, this is the first time we've seen the Enterprise destroyed. No, it's not. Yeah. It was destroyed. I've got a list here. Yeah, but those never happened. Those aren't in continuity. Oh, shut the fuck. <laughs> Jackass. The but point stands. It now, had to happen at some point in this continuity. I will say, holy crap, was it ever well done. All in terms the effects of this. in this film, top to bottom, were 
amazing. The the crawls swarm mm-hmm. was spectacularly well done in terms of the special effects. Really gripping and really believable. When that ship is getting ripped to shreds, you're like, holy shit, like you you see it. When you get the abandoned ship notice going out and everybody's getting out. When you see Kirk in the pod and you see his reflection watching the saucer going down, like everything from that very first, oh crap, what is going on here, to it actually crashing, despite it being a, a, a plot device that we've seen numerous times, holy shit, was it ever well done. And I'll also say to, again, the, the filmmaker's credits, this is one of the many breadcrumbs as to Kroll's you know, true identity, that how surgical he was and how he knew exactly how to debilitate and then destroy the Enterprise. Yeah. So, of course, you get a crap load of the crew. Most of them get kidnapped. And you get the teams that wind up on the planet then kind of forming up, including the, the kidnap crew as well, is where mm-hmm. you see um, Sulu and Hura Sulu, working together. They've had big roles in this film as well. Yeah, that was, I actually, they, I think they could have done a little bit more with those two as yes. well. Yes. It was not they, quite they a, they but then Sulu freaking had moments to shine, like when he is taking that ship out, mm-hmm. and when he looks back, and when he, Kirk says, <laughs> you know how to fly this, and you're kidding me, right? It's like, he just had these moments of like, damn, he's playing that badass really good for a Sulu. He has so much swagger as that character. Yes, yes. I love it. Yeah. And then you get uh, Kirk and Chekhov working together with Calera, which was not just fantastic in terms of that being the two that had the most action going on because they go back to the ship. And I mean, the the, the scene where they're sliding down the <laughs> ship while Kirk is shooting up at them and, and, and shit like that. But it also had these great little moments again between Kirk and Chekhov, which I, I mm-hmm. really, obviously you're, you're going to be looking out for and really enjoy. And then of course, Spock and Bones as well, which had really great moments. That's just uh, such a perfect pairing, pairing of characters. Yes, yeah. Urban was, I thought of the three films, this is where he really came out to play and and show what he can do, which again leads me to believe the next one, I'm worried if he's not in it. If if Mm -hmm. he figures now we're so used to this new crew, if if some of them don't come back, I'm going to be so disappointed because holy crap, you got to see what can happen. Because now we finally feel like the cast has gelled. Yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. And then, of course, Scotty and J-Lo. Jayla being the new character, played beautifully, mm-hmm. perfectly by uh, Sophia Butella, 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 whatever. Um, holy crap. She Somebody I've literally never heard never of heard before. Of, but now love. Now mm-hmm. it's like, holy crap. And the fact that they end with her getting into Starfleet uh, Academy is like, okay, good. Yes. We're going to see her some more. And none of this bullshit, like, what's her name? Alice Eve from... Uh, from the last one, not coming back as Carol Marcus and, and no reference at all to what the fuck happened. <laughs> he was like, welcome to the crew. Never going to see you again. Dream. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> uh, but Jayla was great. And, and I will go so far as to say that the pairing of her and Scotty, it, it couldn't have been better. You couldn't have paired her with anybody else that would have had the same impact because you get the humor uh, of Scotty mm-hmm. with her. But you also get those moments where he's almost a, a father figure for her as well kind of thing. And it, it just, again, it felt really, well, I mean, with him having written it too, I'm sure. He yeah, was, I'm not going to say it's no coincidence that the guy who wrote the movie paired up his character well. With her, yeah. But it was just fantastic. And then Jayla, of course, is living on the old USS Franklin starship, which crashed there, which is an ancient starship. Oops. The house fly when she sits down in the chair and Kirk's behind is like, he likes that chair. I was like, even though I'd seen that in a trailer, I still have laughed hysterically. The, the delivery is so good. Well, because when you see it in the trailer, it has no context. And then when you see it with the context, it's that much better. Yeah. Yeah. He because had it's some. Not, it's like when you first think about it, it's like, oh, she's sitting in the captain's chair. What's she doing? I'm like, no, no, it's her ship. She's the captain. That's right. Damn right. So, yeah, no, it's it, – Scotty was really, really good in this. Like, I mean, he was actually great in Into Darkness as well. 
Yes, one of the like, few bright spots. Yeah, like when he is going in behind enemy lines there, he was spectacular. And here, just as much. So I, I really liked it. Of course, Kirk and Chekhov wind up making their way back to the ship, and then it's a matter of trying to repair and whatnot. Highly unbelievable at that point as well. But one has to assume that many ships have been downed on that planet, so it makes sense that they can scavenge and that she has been scavenging things. She just mm-hmm. might not have been aware of how to fix everything, and of course, Scotty can't. So willing to kind of let that one go. If it had been any engineer in the universe other, other than, than Montgomery him. Scott, I wouldn't believe it. Yeah. So, And then, of course, they've got to infiltrate Crawl's base to get the rest of the crew back, which is where you wind up having the ridiculousness of the motorcycle scene. I I loved it, though. <laughs> I don't care. I was, like, cheering. I was like, this is friggin' awesome. Because it's like, you know, from the instant that motorcycle shows up, you're like, Kirk's going to ride that at some point. Oh, of course. Of course. But it was done so well with the added twist of the weird, like, adhesive or whatever the hell that stuff was. It worked. It was fun. Working is completely different. I, I I felt it was a fun scene to watch, but it made no sense whatsoever. And because again, the motorcycle wouldn't be on the goddamn ship to begin with. They, they never would have had a motorcycle on this ship. It just you makes don't know that. I know it. <laughs> Bullshit. It I, was it was like the, literally <laughs> the first thing Starfleet ever did. There were no regulations. Listen. <laughs> I've seen enough episodes of the Enterprise series with Scott Bakula. There was Captain no Edison motorcycle on there. Motorcycle, you're not going to tell him no. There's no motorcycle on there. None, none. And not just that, but it's not even like a modern for then motorcycle. It's a classic, air quotes, motorcycle. And it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> Again, fun to watch. Certainly made for a hell of well, an action here's scene. Here's the thing. With any movie you can pick apart something like there's always going to be something that you can pick apart but at the end of the day it doesn't matter like if there's a plot point and i'm not even going to start getting back into the into darkness stuff that doesn't make sense <laughs> that you can point out and go why but you have something here that doesn't make sense and you're just like yeah okay whatever that's cool let's go with again it. i'm not making a big deal out of it it's just as you're watching it you're going what the hell and then you see it and you're going all right whatever <laughs> Go ahead, Kirk. You have fun with that. <laughs> so, of course, rescue goes through, and then they got to make their way back to Yorktown once again because that's where Crawl's on his way. So this is where you have the, the this bioweapon that he's got that he's going to unleash on Yorktown, and this is where you get a little bit more backstory as well. On crawl, it was around that same time. I can't remember if it was just after or before, but yeah, it, it was see- a lot of the story was interwoven. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. So you get the the swarm of ships that are on their way. You've got Kirk in in, in tow, and on on the much older and slower starship as well, and trying to figure out from then until they reach your town, how in the hell they're going to be able to defeat this this swarm. Seeing as they couldn't do that with the much more powerful Enterprise. And I bought into that because mm-hmm. that was one of those, I like, you're a fool. Like, you're, you're literally diving back into a situation that you could not win last time, that you were incredibly lucky to survive. What do you plan on doing now? Blasting sabotage... <laughs> Was not at the top of my list of, no. hey, maybe this will work. <laughs> and it was yet another one of those scenes where I felt the concept came up before it was written of, we need to put the song back in because it'll be cool. And it's the song that takes the swarm down. How do we make that work? As opposed to letting the story organically dictate what would work and what wouldn't. And it goes right back to, hey, we need to have a motorcycle scene in this movie. How are we going to make that work? And things like that. And so. Guess what? At, I don't care. You didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> it took every ounce of restraint I had not to jump up in the theater when the song hit the crescendo at the end. 
<laughs> Listen, I'm a mid-30s white guy. The Beastie Boys are kind of my thing. <laughs> I'm not saying I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I find it very funny that I'm being much more critical of this film than you are. <laughs> That's really telling. Listen, when something works for you, it works. Exactly. And and again, it's not that it didn't work per se, just that it was one of those, what the hell? Okay, whatever. <laughs> like, what the hell? And they made it work by virtue of this, again, the what, what uh, Spock and Bones had figured out from flying one of them. Because they previously like established it in the narrative, like good screenwriters. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still, it was a little... Kind of, okay. But, and and see, I I am being much more critical of this than you. (laughs) When you start getting... What have you done to us, Star Trek? (laughs) (laughs) When you get start getting more information about Crawl and what happened, presumably what continued to happen once he stopped recording kind of thing and was taken over by whatever the hell it is that's making him change shapes... Once again, I was having a hard time not wrapping my head around it so much as accepting it as easily as I did the other aspects of the story that were unbelievable but fun to watch. And the whole thing with Crawl, I found, was not nearly as believable. And also, not just that, but also made him far less of an imposing villain. Then say a con. Mm-hmm. I mean, say what you will about Into Darkness. You still have to, and 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 this is not just because of that, but also Rathacon. You you have to appreciate that villain, and and the origins and what he is when he comes up against Enterprise. And yet, this here, I found far less imposing, far less believable, and it just kind of. It kind of graded against me. I think that was the 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 thing in the film that graded against me the most because it leads, of course, to the big final climax. And because I had such a hard time with the concept of crawl and the believability that this would happen, that it was like I had a lot harder time with the ending than I should have. Okay, two things about crawl. First of all. When we first, you know, come to to know Crawl and we're introduced to him and he's talking with Uhura and, you know, various other members of the cast, I was entranced by this character. Between the actor's performance and the makeup prosthetics, they did, again, in my eyes, a fantastic job of portraying something that was very much not human. And a lot of it was in the face and especially the mouth, but through performance of acting through all that makeup, seeing this decidedly non-human thing working to form English words with his mouth, like, made it very unsettling for me. And, of course, yeah, it makes sense why, like, he would be able to do such things with knowing the character, but I, I immediately I was, like, really, like, creeped out by the character like it it was a very effective villainous character to the point where i completely fucking forgot idris elba was in the movie i was like whoever this actor is he's awesome like well idris elba it does happen to be pretty freaking awesome (laughs) i i knew he was in the movie i just because with all the press and everything leading up i just forgot (laughs) when i was in the moment so uh great credit to not just idris elba but the makeup technicians for crawl the character like i adored it at the same time though what you're saying with the the character like again it worked for me i i looked at it it's cerberus from mass effect and a guy that spent his career fighting aliens if you will and now is on a peaceful mission like this is something that's happened throughout history like soldiers don't always make good peacekeepers it's i don't have a problem with that Mm -hmm. why is he turning into this alien it's just a side effect of he's so driven in his mission that he's using this alien technology to prolong his life until he can get his revenge. That's just a side effect. But why is it turning him into an alien? Why? What? How does that... To me, it, it's one of those things which yeah, it's explained, but you can explain something and that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make something that you're like, oh, okay, no, I'm good with that. It makes perfect sense that his physiology is changing so drastically and that he's able to command these 
these swarms and, and, and who the hell are all these other people, aliens or whatever. There was far too many of those where I'm like, this is just, you're, you're stretching it far too thin, that, that believability twine that you're like, like hang on to this for dear life, don't let it break. And and for me, it just, it broke far too much. I, I just was having a hard time accepting that as a reality. Had it just been him on the planet using other means, say, or whatever. Okay, whatever. I, I'd be far more willing to, to believe it, but that the entirety of the alien parts being put into him and whatever else, because it came off more as he was killing off humans and other things to maintain it as well. Not, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, you know what I mean? Not to, not to prolong it, but to bring back his humanity almost at points. Well, I, I, I think many- it ties into, you know, whatever biological essence he's absorbing through the machine is changing his appearance. And I would just venture a guess. Not a lot of humans have ventured into that nebula because that's what we see at the end when he changes into a, more human-like appearances after draining several human crew members. Right. See, I don't feel I don't feel that was properly enough conveyed throughout the movie as it progressed, so that that not only made sense to you as a viewer watching it, but was also believable enough that you were willing to just accept it and just move on without questioning it, it at all. It made sense to me in the moment, so I, I, I'm, it's just one of those things that worked for me. And I don't know what to say. I think it, I th- ironically, really ironically, I think that it is because also I was far more critical of this one. Not just going in, but throughout the entirety of the show mm-hmm. watching it. So little what things like I that. I was looking me. for faults. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> it's just a, a lot of like the, the, the logical leaps the movie make from, for me were a little more intuitive than for you. Huh. Yeah, definitely not. Same thing with the the entirety of the the fight at the end too, putting the bioweapon into the ventilation system, which of course has to be at the highest point, because that where that's where atmosphere is. <laughs> that makes perfect sense, and the the whole using the airways as well kind of deal. There was a whole bunch of things where I'm like, eh, all right. Same as being saved by Bones and Spock, <laughs> like. Spock's hand alone is enough to hang on to Kirk so that he doesn't f- get it's propelled. the fucking death grip, man. Yeah. <laughs> At least have a scene afterwards where Kirk is like massaging his wrist. Going, God damn, that hurts. <laughs> Something. <laughs> I, I, I will say after the ship is on Yorktown, the movie does, I don't want to say suffer, but it, it doesn't work as well as everything before that. Well, it's the birthday party and the resolution to damn near everything. Well, I mean, so. uh, including the, the final battle with Kroll and, and Kirk. Like, after sabotage, like, that's obviously the climax of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, so that's like, I, I was emotionally spent. I was like, yeah. I'm <laughs> no, that's not the kind of spent you were. <laughs> <laughs> so, any parting thoughts? They did it. <laughs> like... I was so done with this franchise after Into Darkness. Like, I I had very, very, very low hopes for this film. And again, that's a lot of that is including the initial marketing, that they found a formula that works. And even if Justin Lin doesn't come back or, you know, they have different screenwriters, like, I hope whatever they do with this movie continuity going forward, that they learn the lessons that beyond taught them and how to make a Star Trek movie work. Because I know a lot of people are pissed off that it's so actiony and whatnot, but it's a movie like as good as Star Trek, the next generation is, it's also pretty dry. And a lot of those, you know, vaunted episodes would not work as a major summer movie franchise. Not to say they couldn't be good, but if you're a summer franchise, you have to have certain mass appeal that a more traditional, very story, character, drama-focused Star Trek story isn't going to have. So you have to have a certain amount of action elements for a Star Trek movie to work in 2016. Let's put it that way. Because... 
freaking whale movie was awesome and that didn't have much action either. <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. Like people and I have not complained about the level of action in mm-hmm. the I, it, reboot it at all because it, there was strong story and character and drama to go along with it. It wasn't just an action movie. Yeah. And it's not just that. It's that, like you're saying, we live in a different time. And I mean, anybody who is a diehard Trekkie that is bitching that there's too much action in this might also be one of the Trekkies that complains about how boring some of the Star Trek original movies were, you know, because Mm -hmm making it something that is just about exploration or making something that's far more be it diplomatic or, or or whatever doesn't necessarily make for an interesting show. Yes, mm-hmm. a 45 minute TV show once you strip the the commercials out, yeah, it can still work and you can be moved yeah. by something. And you know what? You get another one next week, not in 2 years. Exactly. <laughs> but this no you need a driving force and mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. Doesn't mean you can't have strong character moments once again character moments with spock throughout this film spectacular even kirk where there's a lot of melodrama early on kind of thing was still kirk's story is a long game (laughs) yeah but you can still have like i mean the moments with again scotty and j-lo wow i want to see more of that next episode or next movie i should say so yeah so that is star trek beyond let us know what you guys thought about it as is obvious, we had conflicting thoughts, but both did. I need to still go back and like listen to our last Star Trek episode. Yeah, now. really. Still liked it a lot. Enough to see it a couple of times, and once it's out on Blu-ray, I'll be picking it up yeah. because as, as I critical see it. as you were, you still really liked the movie. Oh, I loved it. I yes. still adored it. And which I, is an important thing. You can be critical of things you like, which we've said time and time again. So there you have it. Check out popcornronin.com to check out the show notes. Let us know your thoughts. You can, of course, find the podcast also on iTunes and Stitcher. Leave us your comments there. You can find us also if you want on Twitter. I am Zen Buddhist and he is Simodian. And with that, we will see you in a few weeks when we tackle Stranger Things, which I can't wait for. For more movie, TV, and anime reviews, please make sure to stop by popcornronin.com and leave the guys your thoughts in the comments. And lastly, thanks to Manelli Jamal for the show's theme music. We encourage everyone to check out his site, manellijamal.com, or find him on iTunes and help support this incredible musician by picking up his CDs.